a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering place for people who are not afraid to engage in wrong think. And you'd be surprised how many people will hesitate. Whoa, can I do that? Does that make me a bad person if I question the narrative, if I push back against, you know, what popular opinion or conventional wisdom is telling me? Well, as I'll explain here in a few moments, uh, really, if you want to be a person who is able to live his or her life freely and, and not just be a, a chess piece that somebody else is, is playing in their game, you've got some tough decisions to make. So this is a program not to tell you what to do, what to think, but to encourage you to become that unplayable piece on somebody else's chessboard. I've got some great sponsors who help me to do this, by the way, on a daily basis, and they include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Now, before I, before I dive into some of the content today, i, I got to get this off my chest. This has been weighing on me for a couple of days, and I just think, on the one hand, you know, there, there are some pretty crazy things going on in our world right now. And uh, by crazy, I mean there are things that just feel like they're teetering right on the edge of being out of control. And to point those things out, you know, it, it, it feels like I'm walking this line of, of uh, I'm, I'm, I'm scaring you or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm sharing, uh, you know, alarming information. It's very easy to get caught up in, in the sense that, oh man, we are so doomed. And I don't feel like this is, this is necessarily the case. There is definitely some very serious stuff going on and it's reality and pretending otherwise and politely averting our gaze and not to, you know, trying to, to acknowledge, you know, the elephant in the room. I get that's what polite society is trying to do. Now, Brian, stop trying to scare people. Don't, don't, don't be putting ideas in their heads that would cause them to doubt, you know, the institutions and things around them. But there's a part of me that says, no, you've, you've got this opportunity. You have, uh, for what it's worth, you have this, this little platform from which you can, can speak and share truth with people for whom truth matters. And I just got to tell you, I'm, I'm feeling this, this strong sense that it's time to really put aside the concern about, is this, uh, is this going to make somebody uncomfortable? And just acknowledge, it's, it's going to. In fact, if you're not a little bit uncomfortable as you're listening to this show, I'm not doing my job. And my job is just simply to, to put this information out there. You can do with it as you wish. But we're going to cover some, some pretty interesting territory today. Just, you know, for instance, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, uh, about whether there's a chance of restoring our lost freedoms. I know for some people, it's, they're ready to throw their hands in the air and say, it's done. We can't do this. I don't agree. In fact, even, even if the scales are helplessly tipped against us, I am determined I'm going to live as freely as I possibly can. And what I'm encouraging you to do is, is be the kind of person who, regardless of the circumstances you are in, is so committed 
to living as a free individual that your very existence is a revolutionary act. People around you can't help but uh, but feel the freedom that you're putting out there because you're making waves, not in, in big, you know, obnoxious, you know, look at me, everybody, validate me kind of ways, but just simply because they look at you and they see a good person, <clears throat> excuse me, a good person living your life as you choose, not begging permission from some functionary or some bureaucrat, and they see that it can be done. That's my goal. I want to encourage you to be that kind of person. We're going to talk a little bit about the self-serving elites who right now are flexing hard to assert control over us. And, And here's the thing. They will succeed in gaining that control over us only if we give them permission. If we offer our consent, okay, go ahead, tell me what to do, lock me down, tell me whether I'm essential or not. We have a say in the matter. We're going to talk about uh, some great advice from Jeffrey Tucker about how to be an amazing employee, how to develop a work ethic. You may think, well, I didn't need, I I knew that when I was 16 years old. That's great. We all could use a reminder. We'll touch a little bit on some current events like um, whether or not the U.S. is obligated to go to war with Russia if a NATO nation is attacked. In other words, does a treaty supersede the Constitution? We'll talk about uh, five signs that the power brokers are creating a food crisis. How everybody is anti-war till the anti-war propaganda starts. I'm also going to share with you a very workable antidote for what you can do when you're overwhelmed by news headlines. With the full understanding that I'm probably doing a little bit of that overwhelming. But if you want to stay informed about what's going on, great. You're going to have to see some unpleasant headlines. But you also will have the opportunity to decompress from that. Some great advice from a writer by the name of Walker Larson. Oh, and last but not least, we'll talk a little bit about how wokeness is our problem to fix. And it's Paul Rosenberg. So, you know, this is not, uh, you know, (laughs) kill them all and let God sort them out. This is some very thoughtful ways to respond that can help get to the heart of the problem without bringing more anger to the situation. So that's just kind of a thumbnail sketch of what I'm going to be covering in today's show. And I get it. For some people, that is just too damn radical and it's just too off the charts. And that's okay. If this isn't for you, then then that's fine. This message is not going to resonate with everybody. In fact, I have no idea how many people uh, are, are actually looking for, you know, that uh, that reassurance that, look, you can stand on your own feet. You can assert your independence and claim your rights as a free individual. I know it's not a majority, but I know there are people out there who are looking for it, and it is for them, it is for you, the lion-hearted individual, that I share these things. So, let's start with the, the question of, is there any chance of restoring our lost freedom? If at any level you value your personal freedom, you should be very acutely aware of how that freedom is currently dwindling. And it's pretty clear the people in power, they know that uh, they're they're in danger of that. The gig is up. Okay, people are the the mask has slipped. They are they are claiming authority that is not legitimately theirs, at least not under the constitutional system, which uh, the founders created. And it's not something that just happened overnight. This has been going on for a while. 
but we're definitely approaching a point of no return. This is like a plane taking off. There comes a point where it's rolling down the runway where it's got to commit. Do we have enough room to to get airborne before we reach the end of the runway? We're just about there. And I think uh, this is the time to start really knowing yourself well enough that you can answer that question. What am I willing to stand up for? Where am I willing to part company with, with polite society in order to assert what I know is right? Now, I understand that's going to be a little bit daunting for some folks because it, uh, it, it means you're, you're going to entail um, opposition, You're probably going to be called names. You're going to be called a terrorist. You're going to be called an extremist. I mean, only an extremist would be so, you know, adamant about, oh, I don't know, for instance, you know, not getting the the vaccine when it's mandated that everybody has to do it. We've already seen a pretty clear separation of those who are serious about their their freedom and those who aren't. It just appears that the, the pressure is being turned up. And one of the big warning signs that I'm seeing right now and this is this is one that I'm sorry I keep beating this drum, but um, this historically, when you see power centers starting to assert control over the population's ability to feed itself, you are in a very precarious spot. And some of the stuff that I'm seeing today seems to indicate that uh, we're we're about at that point where if you don't have some form of self-sufficiency and if you don't have the ability to produce at least some of your own food, if not most of your own food, you're going to find that uh, you are at the mercy of others who wish to have control over you and are willing to exert you know, whatever it takes to show you that they're in control. So we're coming up on our break here. When we come back, I'm going to share with you an article by George Leaf. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Is there any chance of restoring our lost freedom? Now, if you're thinking, well, okay, we've got some slam dunk answer here and we're going to figure this all out in, you know, a 10-minute segment, we'll have all the answers and just an action plan. Everybody's going to know exactly what they're supposed to do. It's not that clear cut and it's not that simple. But you have to know this, any solution, anything that really is going to make a difference, a lasting difference in the world, is going to start in your individual heart and my individual heart and radiate outward from there. So let's get our hearts right. We'll continue this conversation just the other side of these messages. Stay close. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. If you're dealing with car accident injuries or neuropathy or maybe bulging herniated discs, these are three areas where DixieChiro.com really can help you. They've got a couple of intro specials that'd be worth your time. If you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, check out the $99 intro special of two treatments plus massage. If it's neuropathy that's uh, ailing you, here's the $99 Calmer treatment plus massage. All the details are at DixieChiro.com. When you talk to him, please mention. Yeah, I'm checking you guys out because Brian was talking about you. So here's an article from George Leaf. 
on AIER.org, Is There Any Chance of Restoring Our Lost Freedoms? And he says, sometimes when I think about what America was like when my grandfather was young, he thinks back to 1908 when his grandfather was 22 and he started a business that, George says, I'm happy to say, thrives to this day. He was the son of Swedish immigrants and started with nothing but some mechanical know-how and a good entrepreneurial idea. Now, stories like his were very common in the America of a century ago. Millions of ambitious immigrants flooded into the U.S. because its governmental system and culture were conducive to productivity and innovation. The people overwhelmingly expected to succeed or fail on their own efforts. In fact, almost nobody thought he had a right to live at the expense of others or had any right to dictate how others must act or what they must believe. Moreover, George Leaf writes, the legal system protected Americans' rights to liberty, to life, liberty, and property, rather. Theft was illegal. Acts of coercion were illegal. If someone wanted your money, he could only ask for it and had to take no for an answer. If someone wanted you to join a labor union, he could ask, but you were free to decline. In those days, there were no officious bureaucrats dictating what people could or couldn't do in their businesses. Taxes were low. At all levels, government consumed less than 10% of the GDP. Therefore, nearly all of America's resources of labor and materials were under the directions, the direction rather of the market's profit and loss system. Profits signaled where more investment would pay off. Losses quickly put an end to ill-conceived ventures. And crucially, government had almost no power to reward special interest groups. It did interfere with international trade to benefit domestic producers, but aside from that, government stuck closely to the precepts of laissez-faire. And the result was tremendous output of goods and services, along with innovation, that propelled economic expansion at an accelerating pace. So America was all about work, a point that Alexis de Tocqueville commented on in his book, Democracy in America. Compared with his native France, where guilds and regulations and the high cost of government acted as a break on the economy, in America he saw boundless energy. But George Leaf says today's America is a very different country than the one my grandfather knew. Governments absorb roughly half of the GDP. There are innumerable laws and regulations governing our lives more than anyone could possibly read, much less understand. There are legions of bureaucrats who are eager to fine and punish anyone who knowingly or unknowingly violates one of those laws or regulations. Governmental licenses are frequently required before an individual is allowed to go into a business or trade, and official permission must often be sought before employing an innovation. He says today government has ample power to reward special interest groups with subsidies or other favors which are avidly sought. And great numbers of people now hold jobs that entail no production of goods or services, but frequently obstruct such production by enforcing laws and regulations that get in the way of efficiency and entrepreneurship. Not surprisingly, these jobs often pay very well and are also avidly sought. <clears throat> and instead of looking to their own efforts to solve problems, he says Americans now want government to step in, pleading for government to raise your income or provide you with medical care or help you through college. That's now the default mode for most of the people. They don't mind at all that what they demand can only come at the expense of others because they've been taught that whatever is done democratically is all right. Now, as a result of this great philosophical change in America today, we have a preponderance of takers over makers. 
and the takers consume the taxes paid by the makers, and many of them have jobs that give them power over others since they're paid to enforce the rapidly multiplying number of rules and regulations. Moreover, the takers exhibit a sense of superiority over the makers based on their idea that it's more noble to work for the public interest than to work in the morally dubious world of profit-seeking enterprise. This dramatic change in the dominant ethos of America couldn't have happened without the persistence of people who were frustrated by the America of the founders, with its principles of limited government, individual liberty, and the rule of law. They disliked the chaos of capitalism, believing that a scientifically managed economy would be much better, shorn of unseemly competition for profits and huge inequalities between rich and poor. They called themselves progressives and told people that if they had control, they would transform the country for the better. Now, the odd thing about progressivism, however, is that it's actually regressive. It takes us back to earlier social and economic arrangements that depended on top-down control by elites who were sure they knew how to run things. Progressivism resembles feudalism, where a few nobles dictate to everybody else how to live and work, supposedly for the overall good of society. Freedom was only allowed insofar as it didn't threaten or disturb the well-crafted order. And George Leaf says, while I'm a subject on the perversion of language, or while I'm on the subject on the perversion of language, I think it's important to note that while the people who insisted on social and economic control are often called liberals, he says they are the very opposite of that. They are authoritarians. True liberals want to liberate people from top-down systems of domination. Adam Smith, for example. Let's not call the likes of Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and other politicians who clamor for ever-expanding government liberals. A better term would be statists. And he says the statists have been extraordinarily successful in changing America's philosophy. Over the last century, and especially from the New Deal on, they managed to turn much of the country away from the individualistic golden rule philosophy that used to prevail and inculcated a collectivist philosophy. Under the old philosophy, people thought that they were responsible for themselves. Many wouldn't accept government welfare during the Depression, thinking it wrong and shameful to live at the expense of others. Several generations later, many great Amer a great many Americans see nothing wrong with seeking government money or other favors. Since the New Deal, government at all levels has expanded enormously, and there's been a huge momentum behind it. So takers now outnumber Makers, the sphere of liberty has been steadily shrinking as government power has grown. More of our earnings are seized in taxes. Increasingly, we are only allowed to use our property as officials will allow. Countless regulations hem in anyone who attempts to engage in business. And all that has been building up for decades. But recently, the takers have launched new offensives against American traditions. And they're not content to merely siphon off some of the wealth produced by the free market. They want to obliterate the market with a great reset that means full-fledged socialism. And they now see dissent from their visions as morally illegitimate, and they've declared war on freedom of speech. Looking at the opposing sides, the takers currently have the White House, Congress, and the vast federal bureaucracy. They can spend any amount of money to buy support from voters. They control education from top to bottom. Starting in grade school, most students are fed a diet of statist ideas about society, the environment, and the economy, as well as American history, race, gender, and anything else that will shape their beliefs toward the beneficence of government and the frightfulness of liberty. You know, he says the takers also take control of most of the media. 
But with a few exceptions, the media covers everything with the goal of slanting the story to make government look good and freedom or its defenders look bad. Alleged market failures will be trumpeted while clear government failures will be ignored. And he says, and in philanthropy, foundations that support leftist ideas have about five times the resources of those that support free markets and voluntarism. Now, that seems like an unfair fight, and it leads you to wonder about the future. You may be wondering what the U.S. is going to be like in the future. Well, the bottom line is we're headed toward a cliff at high speed. Can we regain the freedoms that we've lost? Stick around. I'll give you George Leaf's answer just the other side of our break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article from George Leaf, published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. Is there any chance of restoring our lost freedom? I think he does a pretty good job of outlining the various ways in which we've been losing that freedom. And he says it seems like an unfair fight, leading one to wonder about the future. Is the trend toward ever-growing government or if the grow of if the trend of ever growing government can't be stopped what will the us be like in the future and i got to say when i think about it about the direction we're going right now it doesn't look good george leaf says the result of loss of freedom anywhere is the same declining prosperity accompanied by increasing strife as groups fight to have the government give them a bigger slice of the shrinking pie and his point is that the us is heading toward that cliff at high speed, is there a chance to avoid the taker's dream of omnipotent government? Can we regain the freedom that we've lost? Well, he says those questions are at the heart of his novel, The Awakening of Jennifer Van Arsdale. John Sanders recently wrote a perceptive review of the book, calling it subtly optimistic. And George Leaf says he's right. I am subtly optimistic about the future. For all the heavyweight advantages the takers have, the tide seems to have turned. For one thing, the grips the takers have had on education is loosening. Many parents have realized during the COVID school closures that they can do much better for their children outside of the politicized system of government schools. Many others have learned about the appalling, divisive, manipulative curricula that woke teachers and administrators have smuggled in, and they're fighting back. Higher education is also starting to fade, as Americans realize that the college degree, long touted as a surefire investment, is often a waste of time and money. Fewer students attending college means fewer students subjected to ideological hectoring. And as revenues fall, the schools will have to cut the worst-performing departments. Accounting stays, gender studies goes. Even more significant, though, is the decline in the trust of government. First, the takers managed to break down the Constitution's limits on government power. Then they managed to convince a high percentage of the people that such power was nothing to worry about. It was nothing to worry about, they said, because government officials are public servants, motivated to do what is in the public interest. Democracy ensures that government will do the right thing, or so the tale went. And generations of young Americans were taught to believe in government, but to fear capitalism. Now, wonderfully, that trust has greatly eroded. In fact, he says more than anything else, what caused it to erode was the way government officials reacted to COVID. 
Rather than following the science, they followed their authoritarian instincts, demanding lockdowns, business closures, except for those they deemed essential, mask and vaccine mandates, school closures, and an end to social gatherings unless they were for some leftist-approved purpose like BLM protests. Instead of listening to critics, they smeared and tried to silence them. They refused to admit to making any errors, much less having wrought vast harm upon millions of people they supposedly serve. Nothing has done more more to damage the big government brand than COVID. And George Leaf says the curtain has been pulled aside so the people can see how arrogant and hypocritical our public elites are. And this gives us, those of us who favor a return to the liberal America of uh, his grandfather's time, a tremendous opportunity. George Washington wisely wrote that government is not reason, it is not eloquence, it is force. And George Leaf says for the last two years, millions of people have learned how correct that statement is, as government officials have ruined their lives. With so many more Americans now looking upon government as a malefactor, the iron is hot. The intellectual support for the leftist worldview is a house of cards. It depends on people blindly accepting cliches such as that government spending stimulates the economy, that inflation is caused by the greed of businessmen, that there would be widespread illiteracy if it weren't for government schools, that minimum wage laws don't lead to unemployment, that government officials are solely motivated by a desire to serve the common good, that gun control laws reduce crime, and and more. Those notions are at odds with reality. And any brush with reality is apt to cause the house of cards to tumble. Now he says it won't be just enough. It won't be enough just to toss the Democrats out of office. That's happened before, and the growth of our governmental leviathan was barely slowed. What he says is we need to. What we need to do to restore the spirit of liberty is we have to restore the spirit of liberty rather that used to animate America, and doing so will mean persuading every open-minded person that a free society, meaning one where people may do anything that's peaceful, is best for everyone. The free, truly liberal society is the one that maximizes prosperity, innovation, and harmony. On the other hand, a controlled society ensures declining living standards, less innovation, and conflict as groups squabble for government favors. Millions of Americans know that government power made them worse off during covid And this gives us the opening to persuade them that it isn't just uh, that the COVID tyranny was bad, but the whole agenda of the taking cabal is bad. In other words, the government's littered with people like Dr. Fauci. George Leaf says it's not too late for a pro-liberty counterattack. The authoritarian position has always been weak intellectually. Now it's weak politically. And so he says, let's roll. From here, I want to transition into a commentary from Jeff Minnick about the elites who never say sorry. So if you're feeling, well, how can I be motivated when we've got these great public servants, you know, standing up for us? Okay, check out what Jeff Minnick has to say. He says the car owner knows he must change the oil in his Civic from time to time or his neglect will damage the engine. The drill sergeant understands that he must prepare his rookies for combat or they may fail to perform on the field of battle. The intensive care nurse must keep a watchful eye on the patients assigned to her or one of them may die. All adults worthy of that name bear responsibilities. Good parents see to their children's education. They give them a framework for truth and morality. The best home builders give their customers an honest day's work and excellence in their craft. 
The attorney charged with helping men and women accused of driving under the influence does his best to see that his clients receive just treatment from a court of law. And when these folks fail, the consequences can be dire, and in most cases, they must answer for their failures. Real adults take responsibility for their actions, says Jeff Minnick, unless they're living within the confines of the D.C. Beltway. When the leaders or when the policies of leaders in our federal government go bad, bringing destruction and ruin to citizens, few of those in charge take responsibility for the consequences of their actions. He says, for the most part, they simply remain silent and move on to the next project. So remember that disastrous withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan, that calamitous week when we left behind thousands of friendlies and billions of dollars in military equipment to the Taliban? No one in the government took responsibility for this cut-and-run failure. No generals, no politicians, no bureaucrats resigned their posts or even apologized for their mistakes. Ditto for the lockdowns and masks and missteps of the COVID pandemic. Many observers now report that the damage done to Americans by governmental policies dwarfed those inflicted by the virus. Yet where are the official pleas for forgiveness for these mistakes? Where are the politicians and bureaucrats saying, we really messed up, we're sorry, and it won't happen again? Nearly two years ago, Hunter Biden's laptop with its corrupt international deals and pornography surfaced in the news. At the time, politicians and many in our media denounced those revelations as Russian disinformation and so helped elect Joe Biden as our president. Now these same sources are telling us that the president's son's laptop is real and indicative of deep corruption. And again, No apologies, either for their ignorance or what seems to be an intentional cover-up. And now elites in the Capitol are saber-rattling about the Russia-Ukraine war. Has anyone in an official capacity stepped forward and admitted that this war was in part caused by American diplomatic blunders over the last decade or so? Blunders that continue to this day. And are we really prepared to go to war over Ukraine? A conflict that may bring nuclear weapons to the battlefield? Jeff Minnick says, sometimes it seems as if we've really gone mad. He says, remember President Harry Truman, the guy responsible for dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, who fired General Douglas MacArthur for insubordination during the Korean War and caused a firestorm of protest? On Truman's desk was a sign reading, the buck stops here. But that idea in our capital now seems as quaint as jalopies and petticoats. But here's the good news. Americans are increasingly aware of the arrogance and posturing of so many of their leaders and their refusal to accept responsibility for the horrendous damage they've done to our nation. Now, he has a quote here from H.A. Scott Trask, who has written a biography on, or an article on philosopher George Santayana. This is the quote that he makes. He says, There comes a time in people's lives <clears throat> when the accumulated illusion suddenly collapses. And then for the first time, we rub our eyes and notice and express literally what we see and think. Santiana wrote, but what is the great, what is that but the great reveal of the last six? That's what Santiana wrote was that first part. The next part is, what is that but the great reveal of the last six years in America triggered by the Trump presidency? And what does it mean other than that a kind of spell has been broken and the governing class stands revealed as incompetent fools who've grown rich betraying their country? Their time is passing. Jeff Minnick says, for us, (laughs) for many of us, that time can't come soon enough. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. Happy to have them as my sponsor and also very happy to know the founder of HSL Ammo, Spencer Worthington. I'm still working out the details to get Spencer to come on here and talk about frugality. The guy makes terrific ammunition, affordable ammunition, but he also is he is somewhat of an expert on how to uh, how to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And this is a topic I really want to pick his brain on. So um, if you see him around, just remind him, hey, Brian would really like to get you on his show to talk about that whole frugality thing. Could be a very timely topic. And Spencer, I think, has one of the best takes that, I, that I've ever encountered. So here's kind of an interesting topic and one that uh, you may think, well, I don't know if it's, if it's uh, really for me. But my rule of thumb is, look, if I find really sound advice, I like to share it. And Jeffrey A. Tucker's essay... <clears throat> on how to develop a work ethic and be an amazing employee is very worth your time. This was actually published back in 2016. And Jeffrey Tucker says, talk to business owners about kids these days and you'll get a wicked earful of epithets. Whatever happened to the work ethic? But he says, the answer to that question is not found in some strange corruption of the soul that's taken place in recent years, though that might be the result. He says, the real issue has very practical roots. And it starts with no prior experience. Young people often enter the workforce following school with no previous job experience in a commercial space. Now, there are high costs to this reality, says Jeff Tucker, and they lack essential information or essential formation in what it means to be truly valuable to others. And you don't learn that from sitting in a desk and taking notes for 16 years. It's a habit of mind that connects directly to our habits of time and action. So the old bourgeois sentiment that said that work is as good or better a teacher as school, see, they believed that it was essential for all young people to have jobs so they could develop a work ethic before they became full-time professionals. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says today it's not so easy for young people to get a job. Strictly enforced laws prohibit remunerative work before the age of 16. A serious job is not viable until the age of 18, at which point college beckons and student loans make possible a work-free life. Wage floors discourage employers from taking risks with inexperienced employees, and the tight job market since 2008 limited opportunities even for those who may want to work. So he says the work ethic is the casualty, and this is sad and ridiculous because having a work ethic is not actually difficult. It requires very little other than focus and a handful of rules. Now, they can be summarized. Punctuality, the willingness to do what is asked of you, the discipline to stay on task, the drive for excellence, the capacity to be creative, the passion for discovery of unmet needs, and the adoption of a service-oriented mindset. All of these traits make up the work ethic. It can't always be taught, though. It's best cultivated through experience. In fact, he says, let me start with one of my own experiences. He heard his boss say to another manager, this new Tucker kid is pretty useless. Now, Jeff Tucker says, they didn't know I was listening because I was around the corner. I was 15 years old and working for a catering company. He never does anything, the boss went on. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I was devastated to hear this, but I was lucky at the same time. I had just been hired from a busboy position at another restaurant. And the new company was a scrappy outfit, not some well-organized franchise. Dirty tables, old food, stained pans, stacked plates, sticky chairs, grimy sinks, stinky napkins, piles of rolls, cups, and cooking stuff were strewn everywhere. 
The place was a dump. It was like a kitchen jungle of chaos. And he says, I had no clue what, what, was, what was a what. He says, it seemed like one big catastrophe. But he says, I also recall a sense of fear about the job because I didn't know anyone and I didn't know this business. So I defaulted to extreme caution. I did what I was told to do. I washed some stuff and put away a few things and then was at a loss as to what to do next. He says, no one had time to train me. Everybody was too busy, so I I had no mentors. After I finished my tasks, I just kind of watched the clock. He says, I felt anxious about it, but I was too lost and confused to know the next step. So he says, it's true. I was kind of useless. But this comment, he says, I'm so glad I overheard it. It seared into my heart and then brain, useless. What he meant was that I was costing the company more than I was being paid. Every hour I was there, I was causing them to lose money. I had negative value as a human being. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I could have quit, but I was grateful for the job and I didn't know where else to look. I could have hated on the boss and the manager, but what's the point? I had to change. I had to do something different than I was. I had to become useful. That is to say, I had to contribute more value to the enterprise than I took out in wages. I had to become the kind of person that they wanted there because I made the business more successful. I had to become a person of positive value. So what to do? Well, he says, I blinked my eyes, blinked again and looked around. Oh my, suddenly the place looked completely different. Where I'd previously seen an unfixable mess, a regrettable dump to which I'd been assigned, I suddenly saw work undone, things to do. Plates needed stacking, butter needed to be put in the fridge, the ovens needed cleaning, the floor was filthy, the hallway was a junk heap, the light bulbs needed changing. No one else seemed to be doing these things, so he says, I went nuts and started working my tail off. No one told me what to do. No one said I was doing the right or the wrong thing. Many things I really didn't know how to do. Still, I figured it out. And he says, in the course of a few days, I had transformed the place. I felt a sense of pride and even ownership. He says, I got curious about our next catered dinner. Where was it? What prep work needed to be done? What chairs and tables needed to be cleaned to prepare? I asked these questions and jumped on tasks as soon as I heard the answers. I got ever better at finding things to do because I got to know the business better. Within a few days, I was suddenly valuable, and the boss said so. Sure, I made mistakes. I put towels away in the wrong place and put some too old food back in the refrigerator. Still, they liked that I had tried. I liked me. I kept the job, and after a month, I got a raise. Now, he says, I didn't know it then, but this was the cultivation in my own mind of a work ethic. This ethic is not so much about right and wrong. After all, leisure is a wonderful thing, even a goal, something fabulous and worth shooting for. Work is, to some extent, regrettable, or as economists say, carries with it a certain disutility. We do it in hopes of a higher standard of living, which is to say, a better life. To have a work ethic means to have an insatiable inner drive to adopt the right values to bring about productivity as extension of the choices you must make in your career. In a practical sense, it's a habit of doing what must be done, doing it with a relentless attention to excellence, and then developing a strong desire to do more than you're asked to do. So that means finding things that are undone and discovering ways to do them. And the goal is to let those traits define who you are as a worker, and then come to love and embrace that identity. Man, that's good advice. He says, mastering this ethic is the best possible thing you can do for your own life, 
and it doesn't matter what the job is. The lesson applies to them all. It's not about doing what you're told, though getting that much right is a pretty wonderful thing. Truly, we all need to be reminded of this point. When the boss suggests something to do, it's absolutely incontrovertibly true that it must be done. Other priorities need to be moved down the list. The task must be completed. He says there's nothing in the world that annoys a supervisor or boss or owner more than to have to remember and follow up on a task after it's been assigned to return to the person to whom it's assigned in order to follow up to make sure it's done only to find that it slipped through the cracks. No one has time for that. If you never fail to do what you are asked to do and your boss gains a sense that you always and everywhere do the thing you are asked to do, you can shine like a diamond. And if you do this more than halfway toward being amazing, you're more than halfway toward being amazing. You're already way ahead of your peers. Also, accomplishing the tasks doesn't always have to be about pleasing the boss. Doing things that other people in the know suggest is also a valuable thing. Being a great colleague and friend to others besides your direct supervisor pays huge returns. Now, from here, he goes into the six types of bad employees, and I'm not going to go into details on these, but they include the braggart, the complainer, the hoarder, the offloader, the gossip, and the sneak. And every one of these are really good observations of how we can get sidetracked from really, you know, doing the job and adding value, for which is the reason for which we were hired in the first place. Jeff Tucker says, the work ethic isn't just about the sweat of your brow and saving your soul. It's really about your own individual interest. The reason you're hired is to contribute more value than you take out. And if you do that, guess what? You ascend. And if you don't do that, you're not long for this job and you become just another one of the kids these days. It's the most simple and most profound application of economics because it profoundly affects your life. So he says, you know, to be sure bosses have issues of their own, then it's a different sort. But a great boss can energize an entire enterprise while a bad boss can disable and demotivate even the best workers. That's a subject for a different article. He says, my suggestion is uh, develop that work ethic. And if you find yourself in a place where you can't develop that work ethic, maybe it's time to walk out the door and go somewhere where you can. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you didn't come today expecting me to tell you what to think or what to do or what to say or what to be. Not that I wouldn't be happy to do so, but I understand. Look, that's your call. It's your life. It's your mind. It's your worldview. I'm just here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as you possibly can about what's going on around us. Among the sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis are the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is their website. And look, if you're lucky enough to live in southern Utah, you have the best of all worlds when it comes to the sewing machines, the supplies, the training, the service to back up everything that they sell. It's right there 
and very easily accessible. Now, even if you're not in southern Utah, but you have an interest in long-arm quilting or sewing or embroidery, I would still urge you to talk to them. You're not going to find a better family-owned business that will back up what they sell, again, with teaching you how to use your machine, backing it up with the service of, of, even if you didn't buy your machine from them, they can still service whatever sewing machine you have. But they really carry the best of the best. There's a link in the show notes, again, at sewingandquiltingcenter.com. So here's kind of a weird place to start for the hour, but I thought this was this was actually kind of a timely topic, mainly because we we have a lot of wokeness to deal with in our world today. And and I'm I'm not trying to make a value judgment on the people who are are woke so much as just to say, where does a movement like this come from? And I think Paul Rosenberg actually has some answers that are worthy of consideration. One of the things he points out here is when a culture is in decline, it's common to see desperate attempts to find meaning. And wokeness is an example of people who are trying to find meaning in life. But this is where, you know, I I know for myself personally, it's like, well, I want nothing to do with the woke. I mean, I I typically find that uh, really woke individuals um, tend to be controlling, shrill, you know, um, people who are out there trying to start conflict or instigate conflict rather than fix problems. And so I want to avoid them. And that's not productive. Now, I'm not talking about going to pick and fights or trying to pick an argument or I'm going to convince you I'm going to beat you into submission with my philosophical prowess. It's more of a matter of helping provide meaning for someone who is really looking for meaning. And there are some pretty gentle ways that that can be done. I want you to hear how Paul Rosenberg describes it. He says, woke is most certainly a problem especially because it has overtaken the institutions of the West. Fundamentally, however, woke is a problem residing in individual humans. And because those humans are our children or grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and neighbors, fixing it falls to us. The people involved may disappoint us or even insult us, but we may not give up on them. He says, so I'd like to address the practical side of this problem. And the first thing is to understand that fixing this will not center on reasoned arguments. Because woke isn't simply irrational. It's hardened against reason. Woke grew out of postmodernism, a teaching that no argument can ever really mean anything, and critical theory, meaning that tearing things down is virtuous. These beliefs exclude reason and balance, so woke treats them as oppositional. A woke mob opposes reason simply because it is reason. If you've ever tried to argue with someone who's woke, you've likely seen this. Reason is slow. The mob requires immediate compliance. Reason lacks preset conclusions. And the mob tolerates no deviance. And he says we also also should understand that woke requires devil figures. Without something to attack, it deflates. So it has substance only in opposition to something else. Woke in the end... Isn't a, and this isn't a philosophy, and it's not even a political movement. It's a desperate attempt to manufacture meaning. It exists because the Western thought monopoly of interlocking institutions like education, government, and media have left young people without meaning. Parenthood having been trashed, religion made ridiculous, and physical work made dishonorable, young people find no paths to meaning save for power and celebrity. And there aren't many job openings for power and and celebrity. So you can think of the problem this way. 
When you have a monolithic and monopolistic culture, one that has eliminated the possibility of an outside, and if that culture fails to provide meaning or even opposes it, for two generations running, woke or something like it is what emerges. Now, what Paul Rosenberg is suggesting is that we must show these young people that meaning can be found. And this will not be solved top-down. It's going to be solved on an individual basis, meaning bottom-up. So here, for whatever they're worth, are a few conversation snippets that seem to have some value. He says, please apply them, or not, as you think best. So when you're talking with someone who is you know, particularly woke, he suggests, you know, when someone says to you, well, what do you think we should do? One possible answer might be, I don't want to make anyone do anything. I don't think I have any right to dictate to them, and I don't think they have a right to dictate to me. If someone asks you, well, do you support trans or whatever rights? You can answer, there are no such things as trans rights, straight rights, gay rights, white rights, black rights, or any other subdivisions. There are only human rights, and we all have them by birth. And what rights are those? Listen to his definition. We're free to do whatever we want so long as we don't harm others. Well, and what if someone tramples my rights? Well, then they're a criminal. And what if laws violate my rights? Well, then the people making and applying them are criminals. Now, at some point in a conversation like this, he says, you're likely to find an opening to say something like, look, I just want to love my family and raise my children well. Or, I want to do meaningful work to create and discover. Or, I want to be a good neighbor. Or, I know these things are hard, but they're sacred to me. And I'm willing to suffer for them. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, doing this is our job. As difficult as it may be, there's no one else to do it. So, let's get to work. It's interesting because just this last weekend, I actually uh, had some time traveling with some family and and had some conversation about a pretty woke topic. And, you know, I I have to give credit. You know, the the woke individual that I was speaking with was not being um, abusive or abrasive in any way. There there really wasn't, you know, the, the you have to be this way or you're an evil, awful person. But there was a pretty strong insistence on... You know, it's 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 best to approach this subject from this way. And my response, I'm happy to say, was was really in harmony with what Paul Rosenberg is suggesting here. And my response was simply, look, I'm not out to impose on anybody a certain way that they have to think or they have to behave or they have to speak or whatever. I'm trying to live my life in such a way that I'm not deliberately making somebody else's life more difficult because of what I'm doing. In other words, I'm making no claims on them. And I'm not allowing them to make claims on me. And it seemed to be a satisfactory answer. Or at least we had a, I thought we had a, a productive conversation. Now, whether minds were changed, I couldn't tell you. But I think it was less of the, the goal of, well, I've got to change your mind. That really wasn't the, the goal of the conversation. And frankly, there was, I thought, some some good understanding that came as a result of it. But here's the kicker. There was risk. And sometimes people are just, uh, you know, unwilling to have those conversations because they, they worry about, you know, the risk. Well, what if I do end up, uh, you know, offending somebody? 
Well, if you do, then you act like an adult. And you take responsibility and say, you know what? I'm sorry, I've offended you. It's not that hard, and it doesn't mean, therefore, I have to renounce everything that I ever said, did, or believed, you know, prior to this moment. Nonsense. I mean, there are some people who, um, and there are groups that, that just thrive on, you know, we've got to divide everybody up into identity. And this identity politics, at its heart, is nothing more than a particularly pernicious form of collectivism. Racism is nothing more than a really ugly form of collectivism. So if you can break free from the idea that I've got to categorize everybody according to what group do you belong to? Are you part of this group or that group? And, you know, that depends on whether or not you're a good person or whether or not I can actually, you know, have any common ground with you. Forget that. It's not important. If, if you have to make a distinction, really, the only distinction I can think of that, that matters is, okay, people are going to fall into one of two categories. They're either decent or they're indecent. But that's usually something that's uh, that's best sussed out by their behavior as opposed to what they might be thinking or what they might believe. Does that make sense? I'll have a link to Paul Rosenberg's article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. While you're there, you might even consider subscribing to my show notes. Look down at the bottom of the show notes. See the subscribe button? Click it. You'll be glad you did. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you have probably noticed that when it comes to shopping for a home, they don't stay on the market very long. That means time is of the essence when it comes to getting your dream home. That's why you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather brings decades of experience in the lending industry to getting you the loan you need in a timely fashion. Now you can call her at 435-703-4522. You can visit her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, maybe um, this is going to be a bit of a touchy topic, but I think it's one that needs to be discussed because there are so many politicians and pundits out there trying to make the case that, well, you know, of course, if Russia attacks any NATO nation, the U.S. is obligated to go to war on behalf of that nation. I've heard this plenty of times, and I've heard people say, well, it's a matter of keeping our word. But I have a larger question here, and thankfully, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation brings this question to the forefront and fleshes out whether or not that is truth or whether it is a distortion of reality. This is called the NATO lie, and Jacob Hornberger says Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought to the forefront the NATO treaty to which the United States is a party. He says President Biden and the Pentagon have steadfastly maintained that a Russian attack on any NATO member automatically obligates the U.S. to go to war against Russia. Now, that, of course, would necessarily mean the virtual certainty of all-out nuclear war between Russia and the United States. 
a war that would, needless to say, end up destroying both countries and killing hundreds of millions of people in the process. Now, there's one big problem with the Biden Pentagon position, and that is it's a lie. In fact, the NATO treaty does not automatically obligate the U.S. to automatically come to the defense of any NATO member in the event that Russia attacks that particular country. That's because the NATO treaty does not operate to amend the U.S. Constitution. Now, this is a point that needs to be considered, even if it's uncomfortable. The Constitution is the document that the American people used to call the federal government into existence. The Constitution established a federal government of limited powers. The government was divided into three branches, executive, legislative, and judicial, with enumerated powers being delegated to each branch of government. With respect to war, the framers delegated the power to declare war to Congress and the power to wage war to the president. What that meant is that the president is prohibited from waging war against another nation without first securing a declaration of war from Congress. When the U.S. government was converted from a limited government republic to a national security state following World War II, a fourth branch was effectively added to the federal government, that being the national security branch, consisting of the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Now, while it's been said that these entities are actually part of the executive branch, as Michael Glennon pointed out in his excellent book, National Security and Double Government, the national security section of the federal government, owing to its overwhelming power, is actually the part that is running the show, with the other parts of the federal government operating deferentially in support. Now, the Constitution provides for the specific ways to amend the Constitution. Quoting WhiteHouse.gov, an amendment may be proposed by a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress or, if two-thirds of the states request one, by a convention called for that purpose. The amendment must then be ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures or three-fourths of conventions called in each state for ratification. Now, notice something important. The Constitution does not provide that it can be amended by treaty. The framers did not want federal officials to have the power to amend the Constitution by simply entering into treaties with other nations that change the terms and conditions of the Constitution. Therefore, he says the NATO treaty cannot operate to amend the constitutional provision that requires a congressional declaration of war before the president can legally wage war. Thus, if Russia attacks, say, NATO member Poland, the Constitution requires the president to secure a declaration of war from Congress against Russia before the Pentagon, the CIA, and, and the CIA can wage war against Russia. Now, he says, take a look at an article entitled, The NATO Treaty Does Not Give Congress a Buy on World War III. This is by Michael Glennon, who he mentioned earlier. And it's posted at a website called lawfare.blog. Now, Jacob Hornberger says this is one of the most important articles that you will read in your lifetime. He says, I can't emphasize too highly why you should read this article, and equally important, share it with everyone you know, and equally important, ask them to share it with everyone they know. Glennon is a professor of international law at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. From 1977 to 1980, he served as counsel to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you can read more about his credentials on the Wikipedia links supplied there. 
Now, Glennon's article makes the scholarly but easily readable case that the NATO treaty does not and cannot automatically obligate the U.S. to go to war in the event Russia or any other nation attacks a NATO member. Now, of course, there's a much more fundamental question that Americans must confront. Why is the United States in NATO at all? NATO was established after World War II to ostensibly protect Western Europe from an attack by the Soviet Union. Notwithstanding the fact that there never was any really any real likelihood that the Soviet Union, which was totally devastated in World War II, had any interest in going to war with Western Europe and a nuclear-armed United States. But regardless of whether NATO was necessary or whether it was just part of the Cold War racket, one thing is crystal clear. Once the Soviet Union dismantled, NATO's mission became moot. At that point, the Cold War dinosaur should have been dismantled and sent into extinction. Instead, what the NATO bureaucrats did was keep this dinosauric entity in existence and even worse, began using it to absorb former members of the Soviet Union, which enabled the Pentagon to establish its nuclear missiles ever closer to Russia's borders. It was the Pentagon operating through NATO, which announced it was when they announced their intention to absorb Ukraine that Russia decided to invade Ukraine, as the Pentagon knew it would, in order to prevent the Pentagon from establishing its nuclear missiles and military bases, troops, tanks, and other weaponry <clears throat> on Russia's border. Thus, one of the keys to getting America back on the right track, toward peace, toward liberty, prosperity, and harmony with the people of the world, is to immediately withdraw from NATO, which would bring the immediate dissolution of this Cold War dinosauric entity, as well as bring U.S. troops home from Europe and everywhere else. It is U.S. foreign interventionism that is the root cause of the loss of liberty and prosperity in America, as well as America's disharmony with the people of the world. In the meantime, it is in the interest of every American to understand the nature of the NATO lie, a lie that holds that the NATO treaty automatically obligates the U.S. government to go to war against Russia in the event of an attack by Russia on another member of NATO. So he says, again, that's why I highly recommend reading Michael Glennon's article and sharing it with everyone you know and then asking them to share it with everyone they know. Now, I get it. If you don't have a ton of time to read, I get it. But maybe make some time for this one. Just, uh, you know, possibly. It might be worth your time to to invest a little bit of uh, of study on this matter. and And to me... The, the key issue here is, you know, does he have a point? Can a treaty essentially amend the Constitution? I think I know the answer, too, and I think I would say no. It absolutely cannot. And since there are some pretty high stakes in the uh, currently escalating situation between Russia and the rest of the world... Maybe this is a time to take a few deep breaths and, and consider this as carefully as possible. Got a link to Hornberger's article in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. 
Thanks again for joining us here on the program. Please consider doing business with my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com. We're going to be talking about some food issues here in this next segment. And uh, before I dive into those uh, issues, let me just tell you that uh, food storage is still a possibility. It's still available. Prices are going up, as you may have noticed, but this is true. With everything that you're purchasing food-wise, I guess uh, the the way that I look at this is you're never going to get better prices, or at least in the short term, you won't find better prices than right now. Buy them at today's prices, knowing that you're going to consume this food at some point. I mean, with 25-year shelf life, that's a pretty solid investment. But whether you're starting big or starting small, let uh, lifesavingfood.com give you some options in a rather uncertain world. Well, maybe it's just a rumor. But the prospect of food shortages, that's not something to take lightly. lightly. And I'm, I, I hate it if I sound alarmist on this, but when I see what I'm seeing, I, I can't help but wonder if this is more than just some really weird coincidence that a lot of stuff seems to be converging. Kit Knightley, writing for OffGuardian.org, has an article on five signs they are creating a food crisis. So I offer this for your consideration. What you do with this information is up to you. Kid Knightley says, It's no secret that according to politicians in the corporate press, food shortages and a food supply crisis have been on the way for a while now. They've regularly been, they've regularly been predicted for several years. Now what's really strange is that despite its near-constant incipience, the food shortage never seems to actually arrive and it's always blamed on something new. So if you think back as long ago as 2012... Scientists were predicting that climate change and lack of clean water would create food shortages that would turn the world vegetarian by 2050. In 2019, UN experts warned that climate change was threatening the world's food supply. Later the same year, the UK was warned that they could expect a food shortage as part of the uh, post-Brexit chaos. By early March 2020, supermarkets were already warning that the government had been too slow to act on the coronavirus outbreak and they might run out of food. Now, they never actually did. A month later, in April 2020, when the pandemic was less than three months old, officials warned COVID was going to create a global food crisis. Three months later, it had ballooned into the worst food crisis for 50 years. Now, I have to point out in every single instance here, Kit Knightley provides a link to back up the articles that, that show this is what people were saying. Kit says, in the summer of 2021, the British press was predicting the worst food shortages since World War II and rolling power cuts, allegedly due to a lack of truck drivers, blamed equally on COVID and Brexit. By the way, neither the shortages nor the power cuts ever really materialized. By September 2021, the UK was told the gas price spike would create a shortage of frozen food and just a month later, that we may have to ration meat ahead of Christmas due to the gas crisis. There never was any rationing. In January 2022, Australia saw empty supermarket shelves, blamed on the Omicron variant crippling the supply chain, while the U.S. had the same empty shelves, blamed on bad winter weather. Now, moving into spring of 2022, the food crisis is still on its way, only now it's because of the war in Ukraine or China's zero COVID policies or the bird flu outbreak. So Kit Knightley says you'd be forgiven for thinking that since the food crisis is always expected but never arrives and it's always blamed on the current thing, that it doesn't really exist. 
that it's nothing but a psyop designed to spread panic and give suppliers an excuse to jack up their prices in response to fake scarcity created by the press. However, there are indications that this may be about to change. This is why I'm bringing this up. Kit Knightley says in a Brussels press conference on March 25th of this year, Joe Biden said, regarding food shortages, yes, we did talk about shortages and they're going to be real. Which is a decidedly odd thing to say. Most of the time, the only reason to strongly affirm something is going to be real from now on is up to that point it was not. And indeed, there are a few signs that the food supply is about to genuinely come under attack. So, number one, Ukraine war and Western sanctions. It's well documented that Russia's special operation in Ukraine has driven up the price of oil, gas, and wheat, partly due to disruption on the ground, but mostly due to Western sanctions. Russia is the largest exporter of wheat and other grains in the world, and these products are not used just for making food for humans, but also as animal feed. Western nations boycotting Russian wheat will therefore potentially drive up the price of a huge variety of foodstuffs. We've already seen rationing of sunflower oil, a major Ukrainian export, with reports that this could extend to all other kinds of products, including including sausages, chicken, pasta, and beer. Now, Kit Knightley says this war did not need to happen. It could have been prevented and it could still be stopped by a simple agreement on Ukrainian neutrality. Combine that with the sweeping nature of the anti-Russian sanctions unmatched in recent history. And you can reason that the chaos on the ground and concomitant increase in food prices is part of a deliberate policy serving the Great Reset agenda. Number two, there's the increasing price of oil. The increased price of oil has natural and obvious knock-on effects for every industrial sector, most especially transport, logistics, and agriculture. Despite fears of a cost-of-living crisis, warnings of food shortages and Russia's status as the largest exporter of oil and gas in the world, Western nations and their allies have made virtually zero effort to lower the cost of oil. The high oil price has already seen the Russian ruble bounce back to pre-war strength, and yet Saudi Arabia has been increasing their price, not flooding the market to tank the price as they did in 2014 and 2015. Keeping the cost of petroleum high is a deliberate policy decision and one that shows the cost of living crisis and any resultant food shortages are being engineered on purpose. Number three, bird flu. The press is claiming there's a major bird flu outbreak going on. And as the the Off Guardian website published last week, the dynamics of bird flu seem to be identical to COVID. Birds are tested for the virus using PCR tests, cold if they're positive, and these colds are then labeled bird flu deaths. So this process has already seen at least 27 million poultry birds destroyed in the U.S. alone, the world's largest exporter of both chicken and eggs. And France and Canada and the U.K. have also culled millions of birds. Bird flu has allegedly already caused the price of chicken and eggs to skyrocket. Now, as a potentially important aside, a new report is warning pigs can pass superbugs to humans, so pigs may be for the chop sometime soon as well. Number four, the U.K. and U.S. paying farmers to stop farming. Going back to last May, the Biden administration began pushing farmers to add agricultural land to the Conservation Reserve Program. That's a federally funded program allegedly aimed at preserving the environment. Now, the program is essentially paying farmers not to farm. 
a very odd policy decision given the widely, the widely predicted food shortages. A state-level plan in California is going to pay the farmers to grow less, this time in the name of saving water. And interestingly, the U.K. has a similar program going on, again, allegedly for totally different reasons. Starting this past February, the British government is paying lump sums of up to £100,000 to any farmer who wants to retire from farming. Again, a strange policy during a period of geopolitical unrest impacting the food supply. Finally, number five, manufactured fertilizer shortages. Russia and Belarus are two of the biggest exporters of fertilizer and fertilizer-related products in the world, accounting for about $10 billion worth of trade annually. So the war in Ukraine and the sanctions are already hitting the fertilizer market hard, with prices hitting all new all-time highs in March. China, the third biggest exporter of fertilizer in the world, has had a self-imposed export ban on the product since last summer, allegedly in an effort to keep domestic food prices low. Given that, isn't it strange that America's Union Pacific Railway has suddenly placed a limit on the number of fertilizer deliveries it will make? Informing fertilizer giant CF Industries, they will need to cut their train car use by as much as 20%. Now, the timing of this could not come at a worse time for farmers. According to CF Industries, not only will fertilizer be delayed by these shipping restrictions, but additional fertilizer needed to complete spring applications may be unable to reach farmers at all. By placing this arbitrary restriction on just a handful of shippers, Union Pacific is jeopardizing farmers' harvests and increasing the cost of food for consumers. Oh, and we didn't even get to the bonus, which was fires at food processing plants. That's a bonus slot because there are multiple unknowns. But there seems to have been a rash of fires at food processing plants all over the United States in the last six months. Since August 2021, at least 16 major fires have broken out at food processing plants all over the country. So in summary, there seem to be a lot of things that are working against the food supply chain. And I know it may sound conspiratorial, but a lot of this seems to be a matter of policy. Taken individually, they could be seen as mistakes or coincidences, but you put them together, there seems to be a pattern. We are running headfirst into a food crisis, and it looks like the people in charge are the ones actively creating it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. A couple things I got to share in the final segment here. One of them is from Caitlin Johnstone. I just, my admiration for Caitlin grows every time I see one of her commentaries. And I especially, this is one of the things that to me makes her very credible. She put something out the other day, this was on Twitter, and it just said, hey, if you're wondering whether I need attribution or I need to be paid for my content, she says the answer is no. She's not looking to to make money off it. Now, she is supported by her readers, and it's just strictly on a voluntary basis. They'll, you know, send her a few bucks here and there, a few shekels, you know, to, to keep the lights on. 
But to me, what a strong indicator that uh, she is just simply trying to speak truth as best she can because she says, I I don't care whether you give me attribution here, whether you uh, pay me for the content I'm creating. I'm just getting it out there. And that's why I'm including a link to her uh, one of her latest columns, which is everyone's anti-war until the war propaganda starts. And I'm not going to share the whole thing with you, just a couple of quick excerpts here. You know, most people are anti-war, and they don't think of themselves as a warmonger. But the spin machine gets going, and before long, they're spouting the slogans that they've been programmed to spout, waving the flags they've been programmed to wave, and consenting to whatever the imperial war machine wants in that moment. And by the way, you and I may think, well, at least I'm smart enough, I wouldn't fall prey to that. But the truth of the matter is, I would, and I have. One of the things that she points out here, let's see, I just wanted to to share this part because she says, you know, propaganda is the single most overlooked and underappreciated aspect of our society. She says it has far more influence over how the public thinks, acts, and votes than any of our official mechanisms for doing so, yet it's barely discussed. It isn't taught in schools. Even the best political ideologies barely touch on it relative to their other areas of focus. Propaganda only works on those who don't know they're being propagandized. And she says the the U.S. centralized empire's ability to hide its propaganda machine is a foundational element of its brilliance. And it takes work to see things clearly enough to form a really truth-based worldview. But Caitlin Johnston says, unless you do that, it's impossible to be truly anti-war and skillfully oppose something that you don't even understand. She says, don't make the error of assuming you'll be aware and informed enough to spot all the lies right away. And this is sobering, but I think she's right. You're dealing with the single most advanced and powerful propaganda machine that has ever existed, and you've been marinating in its effects your entire life. So it takes time to unplug from that matrix. Even the most aware among us, she says, were indoctrinated into the mainstream worldview to some extent earlier in their lives And to this day, most of the information they get about the world has some of its roots and branches in parts of the propaganda matrix. So be gentle with yourself. Learn how to research and learn new things about the world. But examine the beliefs you already hold about your society, your government, your nation, your world. And be willing to inquire whether they're really true and who benefits from you believing the things you believe. It's, it's scary when you start doing this. But again, if you're going to stay tethered to reality, it's, it's very necessary. I hope you'll, you'll click on her article, which I include in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. All right. Here's a, here's a quick one that I think could be very handy. Overwhelmed by news headlines, consider this antidote. This is from Walker Larson, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. Reading news headlines can be a risky affair and full of fear and anxiety. What, what do you do in those moments when you feel the storm is rolling in? Walker Larson says, scan the headlines. What do you see? Darkness, rumors of World War III, food shortage threats, economic instability, political turmoil, the spread of radical gender ideology. Some days it feels that we're spinning out of control. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold, as William Butler Yeats writes in his poem, The Second Coming. Now, one specific example of impending doom came on April 20th, 
when Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that his military tested the RS-28 Sarmat. Also known as Satan-2, it's Russia's most powerful thermonuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missile. Putin called it food for thought for those who would dare threaten Russia. And so it is. Going back to the second coming, one wonders if the rough beast of another global conflict, its hour come round at last, slouches toward us to be born. Such considerations cause images of nuclear Armageddon to bloom as a black thought in the mind. Reading news headlines, he says, can be a fairly risky affair. Now, Walker Larson says, I don't know whether we stand on a precipice. He says, my concern in this article is with the psychological reality of that feeling of fear and anxiety. What do you do in those moments when you feel the storm is rolling in? Well, he says, as a literature teacher, I turn to books. They're in my defense against nuclear apocalypse. Do you realize seven inches of books will block half the radioactive gamma rays passing through them? Pretty good protection if a blast occurs near you. Stack them up. Now, he says, I jest, of course, because humor helps us cope, too, though what I write is true. In all seriousness, he says, we find wisdom and hope for uncertain times, protection for the soul, in certain works of literature. Literature explores universal aspects of human nature and experience, including archetypical battles against seemingly hopeless situations, teaching us how to respond. The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien, for instance, provides medicine for dark days. Tolkien's characters Sam and Frodo are on their way to destroy the ring, the core of all evil in Middle-earth. They're in Mordor, a dark, broken, ashen land filled with orcs, holy evil. It's the underworld. It's hell. They've entered the belly of the beast. They're exhausted, discouraged, and the darkness feels overwhelming. And then this, quote, There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked, out, looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that, in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. End quote. So, Sam's revelation can be ours too, says Walker Larson. Some things endure. <clears throat> Some beauty can't be marred. Some goodness will never be erased. Whatever may happen to us, the music of the spheres far above us, real even if inaudible to our ears, will continue. Sam's consolation doesn't come from thinking about himself. For a moment, he's indifferent to his own fate. What comforts him is the knowledge that truth, beauty, and goodness, at least on some level, can never be swallowed by the darkness. For us, the principles of Western civilization will endure and remain as true as ever, even if everyone else forgets them. And if we have faith, we know that love is stronger than death and truth stronger than lies. Even if the worst happens, some forgotten votive candle in a half-ruined church will burn on after the rumblings have fallen silent. Nothing eliminates truth. We may be destroyed politically, culturally, or physically, but it, truth, never will be. And Walker Larson says, for me at least, that's a comfort derived from the treasure vault of literature. The good will endure. On the dark days, I hurl that reply into the teeth of the storm. Now, for me, that, that begs the question, then, where do you find sources of truth? 
And I'm, I'm particularly looking at what books do you have access to that can help you find a truth on which to stand? I'm not looking for any one right answer. For some people, it might be, you know, it might even be a work of, of fiction. Or, you know, it might be a terrific novel. Alas, Babylon actually comes to mind as something that might be a, a useful read or something that could be inspiring. Others might find books of Scripture, you know, their core book as a place where they can turn to remember that truth endures. Look, I love my screens as much as the next person. It's so easy to click a button here or swipe a finger there and, you know, to have content right there at my fingertips. But I'm still kind of old school in the sense that I just can't get rid of my good books. And I love books that provide some insight into why the world is the way that it is and what people who came before me have experienced. And one thing that you'll find if you if you delve into literature, particularly if you read classics, and they could be fiction, they could be nonfiction, they could be scientific classics, whatever the case may be. You're going to find that for the most part, humanity still wrestles with the same questions that it always has wrestled with. Human nature is constant in spite of some of the changing circumstances around us. People are still people, and we tend to view the world in in much the same way that uh, the human beings who came before us tended to view it and struggle with it. I don't know why, but I find that comforting because there's a lot of wisdom that they left us as part of their journey. We can benefit from that. And hopefully, you know, gain and build upon it and maybe leave a little wisdom for the ones who will be following in our footsteps. This is The Brian Hyde Show.